0: Global in the Granite State Podcast, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. As always, I am Tim Horgan, the Executive Director of the Council, and your guide through this program. It has been a little over a year since we started Global in the Granite State, and I never expected it to rise to the level it has. It amazes me that this podcast has been heard in at least 13 different countries and in almost half of the states here in the U.S., so I appreciate everyone's support in our efforts to help engage the community in discussions of complex global issues. I do have one request for you all, however, and it's an easy one. If you enjoy listening to our unique and interesting interviews, please take a moment to rate this podcast. That's right, the five stars over there on your screen. Just give it a little tap or click. Also, if you would take the time to leave us a comment about issues, topics, or people you would like us to have on our next episode, we can work to make that happen. Without feedback, we cannot improve our program and its reach. Your assistance is much appreciated. As you have all heard by now, I am sure, there is a new virus running rampant throughout the world. The coronavirus seems to be all people can talk about in the news. So I figured I'd join in the fun. While the news media continues to beat the drum about this issue, I tried to take a measured look at this epidemic and provide some insights, through Dr. Jonathan Quick, about what you really need to know in terms of this virus. Join us as we discuss the global response, New Hampshire's response, and what you need to know to stay healthy.
1: be alarmed, but I would uh, take it seriously and take actions to protect yourself and your loved ones.
0: That's Dr. Jonathan Quick, adjunct professor of global health at Duke Global Health Institute, who has an extensive background in global health initiatives. He's also the author of The End of Epidemics, which he joined us in New Hampshire to talk about back in 2018. You join me over the phone to talk more about the coronavirus and its global as well as local implications.
1: But you should apply really good personal hygiene. Handwashing is very effective, and coughing or sneezing into your sleeve is effective. We found that, that in flu outbreaks, that can reduce infection by 50% or more.
0: We have been inundated with stories about the global spread of the novel COVID-19 virus, or coronavirus but is it something that people are overreacting to? Or is it a dire threat to our lives and livelihoods? I spoke with Dr. Quick to find out more about this latest strain of coronavirus to make the jump from animals to humans.
1: The current coronavirus we call COVID-19 came out of central China in Wuhan from a live animal market. And that virus probably from just the slaughtering and handling of those uh, food animals got into uh, humans there and has now been transmitted from human to human by respiratory droplets. That was the source of the epidemic, and it really exploded at the worst possible time. This is the worst possible place in the worst possible time. Wuhan is a busy major megacity that um, is right at the intersection of, of water transport and air transport, just before the holidays, and within a matter of days, Thousands of people literally had had been exposed. And from there, it's now been transported to uh, more than 80 countries. It travels and is uh, transmitted, like previous coronaviruses, by respiratory droplets, basically person-to-person contact.
0: You may have noticed that Dr. Quick mentioned that this is not the first coronavirus found in humans. However, if this is the first time you are hearing about coronavirus, It is because the two others you may have heard of went by more well-known names today. This large family of viruses have crown-like spikes on their surface. There are currently four common human coronaviruses that will cause symptoms of the common cold. However, as Dr. Quick mentions,
1: This is the third really deadly coronavirus that has gone international. The first one was very similar kind of pathway out of China in 2003, the SARS virus. Within a matter of weeks, that got to 27 countries, afflicting 8,000 people and killing about 800. But through rapid public health action, that virus was put under control. And within six months, the epidemic was ended and it's not returned. The other virus is one that came out of the Middle East called MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, and that came out in the later 2000s. That has been just sporadic. What's different about this coronavirus, the, the good news is that it's less fatal. SARS had a 10% fatality rate, uh, MERS a 30%. This on average for most of us is a, is about a 1%. Doesn't sound bad, but that's 10 times what flu is. But For people with heart disease, other chronic diseases, the fatality rate is as much as as 10%. So that's one difference. The other is this seems to spread much more readily than the previous coronaviruses.
0: One interesting thing that I discovered during research for this interview is that the virus itself is called SARS-CoV-2, while the disease that it causes is actually called Coronavirus Disease 2019, or COVID-19 for short. Also, I had no idea that there was an International Committee on Taxonomy of Viruses, which is responsible for naming new viruses discovered every year. The virus name is intended to reflect the genetic similarities between this novel coronavirus and the virus that caused the SARS outbreak in 2002-2003. Many different diseases have separate names from their virus that causes them. Think HIV and AIDS. Viruses are named based on the genetic structure to help facilitate the development of diagnostic tests, vaccines, and medicines. While diseases are named to help people discuss their prevention, spread, and transmission. Therefore, to avoid confusion, the World Health Organization chose COVID-19 instead of SARS. However, the International Committee on Taxonomy of Viruses chose SARS-CoV-2 to represent the similarities of these viruses. This also helps to illustrate why words matter. The World Health Organization has yet to term this a global pandemic despite the fast spread of this virus. I asked Dr. Quick why they would hesitate to name this a pandemic and why that matters.
1: The difference is that if we look globally at these 80 or so countries, there are four of them where it's really the take up almost all the cases. And those are South Korea, which is which has got half of the global cases now. Iran, where there's an out of control epidemic. Italy in the northern part. For the vast majority of those countries, of the 80 countries, they're having a handful of cases. In some instances, a few dozen cases. So it is it is still focused in a handful of countries. If that continues to change, then yes, we would declare it a pandemic and I would would agree with that assessment. The question of what does it make a difference? It does in the perception and the challenge for public health leaders is that with a virus like this, we're finding the virus, identifying cases, finding their contacts, asking people to isolate, Uh, that, that all depends on public understanding, trust, and cooperation. So if you, if you ring the fire alarm too early, then people are going to say, oh, that's WHO call it a pandemic again. And if you ring it too late, you're in trouble. So they're being very evidence-based and thoughtful about when to really sound that highest alert.
0: As the virus spreads, New Hampshire has seen two confirmed cases as of the first week of March. Beyond the precautions that Dr. Quick suggested earlier, what should the state be doing in order to protect the population?
1: The state should take those cases seriously, and what they are doing is good modern public health. They are isolating those cases. They are identifying all the people who they may have been in contact with while, um, when, while they're infected, and they'll be quarantining those people.
0: And what about on the personal level? Dr. Quick has three key things to be aware of.
1: First, as I say, take COVID-19 seriously. And we know most cases are mild. So those simple habits, hygiene, are effective and they they do work. Travel restrictions are effective and that's part of it. The second thing is base your decisions and actions on the facts and the latest advice. Social media is useful to track what folks are thinking. But for your own well-being, base your decisions and actions on reliable sources. The best source, and they're constantly updating it, is the uh, U.S. CDC, the Centers for Disease Control. And just get online, www.cdc.gov. Their core purpose is protecting and promoting the health of, of Americans. So I think when you are concerned about what you should be doing, that's a source. The other is the state health departments. We have a strong system of state health departments and county health departments, and and they'll give you the information that is relevant for for your community.
0: As more information has come out about this novel coronavirus, COVID-19, it seems that people are falling into two camps. There are those who think this is no worse than the seasonal flu, and those who see the next spanish flu pandemic of 1918. with so many sources out there either pulling the fire alarm or telling us not to worry i wanted to hear from an expert in the field who has studied epidemics and how they progress so which does dr quick think it is closer to
1: it's a little bit of both it's like the seasonal flu in that it is spreading it doesn't spread in quite the same way in the sense that the seasonal flu is enabled by basically waterfowl, migratory fowl who carried all over the world. This doesn't happen with coronavirus. So it, in that sense, it's actually less contagious globally than, than the flu. In terms of the potential impact, it does have the potential to be a pandemic. It's not killing enough people in enough places to call it a pandemic. But it is heading in that direction. So we we need to track each day, we look at the number of new cases. And just as an example, a month ago, just a month ago, there were 130 cases outside of China. That's all. Today, there are over 13,000. We're adding 2,000 cases a day. So we're gonna watch that epidemic curve and track how the, the virus is traveling and where it is and which communities it's taking off in.
0: As the world watches this virus spread, the World Health Organization came out today to say that government action in countries around the world will now dictate how the virus acts in each country. Public health systems have been strained around the world, and the U.S. just passed an $8.3 billion emergency bill to help combat this epidemic. The goal is to help stop the spread of the disease before it becomes endemic in the human population, a point that may have already been passed. That would mean the only way to eradicate this disease would be to create a vaccine and get people to actually use it. Having said that, Dr. Quick does think that the global response has been strong.
1: Really strong and quite different than five years ago when we had the Ebola outbreak. So we're doing a lot better. That being said, it's nowhere near as strong as it could be or should be. We now have a scorecard, the Global Health Security Index, 2019, came out about six months ago, that looks at 195 countries. Do they have the ability to keep us safe, to prevent, detect, and respond? Good news is that the U.S. ranks first on that. And that's that's an index by Johns Hopkins, the Economist Intelligence Unit, and a group called NTI. But the bad news is even those of us at the top have weak spots, and only one out of five countries worldwide is at the top level in that. So we've got a lot of work still to do. And the price we pay, what we're seeing now with the markets and all, the price we pay for not doing that is huge compared to the the relatively small cost of actually getting prepared.
0: So what can we do as a country to help prevent something like this from happening again?
1: Well, the first thing is to be sure that we are investing in our public health system. After 9-11, Congress created U.S. Public Health Emergency Fund. It was well-funded. Then There wasn't an outbreak in a while it started. The budget started to go down. Then we had the bird flu, and the budget went back up. And then we had the financial crash of 2008, and the budget went back down. And over a period of six years in the early 2000s, we lost 45,000 public health workers in the U.S. You can't do that. It's like canceling the fire insurance and closing the fire department when there hasn't been a fire in town. And so that's number one is, is we have to hold our leaders accountable for for investing in what the public health experts say is needed. I think on the on the individual level, we need to first learn about how to get in the habit of good hygiene, but also take a look at our own health status. So people need to be looking at their immunizations. The coronavirus doesn't typically kill directly the virus. What it does is weaken your immune system, and you get a, a everyday pneumonia on top of that. We have vaccines for pneumonia, so individuals need to be prepared. Communities need to ask who's at risk in their communities and how they're going to support it. In the 1918 flu, we have wonderful examples of communities supporting each other. Health providers need to have unified messages about when to come to the hospital and when not. And the reason is that what happens in epidemics is they're trying to take care of the sick, find out who's sick, who isn't, and keep the health services going. If everybody rushes in for for their testing and everything else at the same time, we're going to overwhelm the health system. So getting good messages when to come in, when not to. And the other thing that providers need to do is exercise their response. Every plan, every hospital in the country probably has a pandemic preparedness plan, but they haven't exercised it. And part of the, the, the delay in, in takeoff is that they haven't done that. And so I think those are a couple of the things for individuals, communities, and, and health providers that, that are
0: important. Speaking of prioritizing health care, I asked Dr. Quick about who is most at risk to contract the virus and who is at the highest risk for death?
1: What we know so far, and keeping in mind, this virus has only been known for two months, so mm-hmm. we're still learning every day. But we, we know that people with heart disease, with diabetes, with uh, other chronic diseases are, are at risk. We know that older people are, even if you don't have heart disease at all, your immune system tends not to be as, as efficient. People with cancer or are on medicines that that reduce their immune system, all those groups need to be very thoughtful if coronavirus is in the community about their their daily activities and and where they go. A few things that, that are helpful is keeping distance from folks and not, for example, being crowded together for a period of time. It's the direct contact with people, it's the time together, it's the distance that that affects the contagiousness.
0: For those who are wondering, the CDC considers direct contact to include an extended period of time being within six feet of someone who is infected, generally meaning living with them or being at a public gathering, or having someone cough or sneeze directly on you. As you may have seen, there has been a run on medical supplies around the world particularly surgical masks. I wanted to know if these masks actually provide protection or are only for those who are sick.
1: Yeah, the the Center for Disease Control and most experts that I know don't recommend the surgical masks as a way of preventing yourself from from getting it. They they don't filter viruses and you keep adjusting the mask. And if you had to have the virus, and you're up there with the mask, you, know, you may well increase your chance of getting it. So, no, they're not recommended surgical and masks as a way of protecting the general public. If people do have the coronavirus, then they are recommended for that.
0: Many people, prior to the current outbreak, have questioned the U.S.'s commitment to anything global these days. They do not want to see the U.S. involved in many of the crises around the world, figuring that it is not our problem, but their own to fix. This was particularly shown in the Ebola outbreaks in Africa five years ago, when many people did not want to send U.S. aid workers to help contain the spread of the virus. We have talked with many experts before who said Ebola was close to spreading to Nigeria, one of the most populous countries on the continent, and who knows where it would have gone from there. I asked Dr. Quick for his thoughts on what this outbreak can tell us about why we should care about global affairs and things that happen a world away.
1: The current coronavirus, I think, has made it really clear, what the experts have been saying for years, that we are a really interconnected world. We're, we're 50 times as, as mobile as we were 100 years ago. There's virtually no place on the planet that's, that's more than, than 24 or 36 hours by canoe, bus, plane, uh, train to a major urban center. When we have these megacities, where you've got crowding and easy transmission, we are much more vulnerable, much more interconnected. And so we're only as safe as the safest place on, on earth. And so we we really need to be vigilant, investing not just in our own country, but in global health, the former head of the For Disease Control talks about a congressional representative in the middle of the Ebola outbreak who said, I'd rather fight Ebola over there than over here. And that's a self interested view, but it's a reality that if it motivates, investing in this country and helping other countries, then it'll keep us all safer.
0: My final question for Dr. Quick was, what message would he like our listeners to come away with from this interview? He strikes the right balance here of level-headedness and vigilance.
1: I think that the message is pray for the best, but plan for the worst. So be ready to be inconvenienced, but be positive about our ability to overcome this.
0: Thank you again for listening to this month's Global in the Granite State podcast. We here at the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire really appreciate your interest and support. As a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization, we strive to bring high quality expert information to the state and community with the goal of increasing geopolitical literacy. As the world continues to become smaller, it is important for us to all understand each other better. We want to ensure that the world is as peaceful a place as it can be, and that can only be achieved through understanding. Thank you for taking the time to engage with our program, and we hope to see you soon at an upcoming event. Finally, for those of you who are trivia fans, please join us on April 15th at Dos Amigos Burritos in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. It's a great time, and we want to see a lot of people there. As an incentive, here's a little hint to one of our rounds of trivia. I would highly suggest studying up on the home countries of some of the top beers from around the world. The brew that stumped the most people actually does have the name of the country in it. Until next time.